Welcome to PS, Greatest Hits of the Puget Sound Podcast, where we revisit our conversations with members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. I'm Elena Becker, and today we're revisiting my conversation with Professors Catherine Smith and Krista Kotsis, professors in history and art history, respectively. This conversation was recorded and produced by Moonyard Studio in May of 2019, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Krista, Catherine, good morning. Good Good morning. morning. Thank you so much for joining me, first of all. I know it's early and a little bit after the end of the semester, so I appreciate it. Absolutely. Not a problem. Just to get things started, would each of you just introduce yourselves briefly so we can distinguish voices and then also maybe chat a little bit about uh, what your your individual academic backgrounds are? Sure. Um, My name is Krista Kocic. Um, I uh, teach um, art history at uh, the university, and I am a medievalist, um, and I study Byzantine art in particular, but I teach quite widely at the university from the ancients through the medieval world, mostly in the West, including the Mediterranean and the Near East. Um, I'm Catherine Smith. I teach in the history department. Uh, like Krista, I'm also a medievalist. I work on sort of Anglo-Norman world in the 11th, 12th centuries, and especially the Crusades. But I teach all kinds of stuff, too. One of the great joys of being at a place like Puget Sound is nobody's already staked out whatever territory you might imagine <laughs> would be yours. And so I teach all European history from sort of the end of the Roman Empire to the early modern period. And what are some of those course titles if someone were to Let take a class So with I you. teach a course on the Crusades, which is the closest to my own research. And I teach a course in the um, Gender and Queer Studies program called Women and Gender in the Premodern European Past. Uh, I teach a course on the Renaissance in Europe, which is mostly about late medieval Italy. I teach a course on the Reformation, which... I always think nobody will take, but people <laughs> continue in our world of religious discord to be very interested in where some of that came from. And I teach a couple of courses that are sort of survey courses, the kind of Plato to NATO part one kind of European history courses. And Krista, what about you? What are some of your course titles? So I have a couple of freshman seminars, both of which are actually tied to uh, to my interest in Byzantium. One of them is on the Church of Hagia Sophia called something along the lines of uh, from the emperor's church to the sultan's mosque. Mm. Uh, then I have um, another freshman seminar on women and power in Byzantium. I also have a couple of surveys, one in the honors program and one uh, one survey of ancient and medieval art. And then I have, I think, five other somewhat more specialized courses on Roman art, Greek art, Western medieval art, Byzantine art, and Islamic art. And then I also teach the uh, art history methodology course. Do you have a preference between teaching some of those big picture survey classes and teaching something where you really dive into a particular area? Um, I, I tend to uh, enjoy uh, teaching the 300-level courses, which focus a little bit more closely, although they are still really quite broad sure. themselves. I mean, we are when we are talking about Byzantine art, it's at least a thousand years that we are looking at right there. Um, and um, I, um, I enjoy those in the sense that I can assign significant, sophisticated readings that, um, uh, that perhaps I wouldn't assign in an introductory course. Right. But in um, and so we can get more deeply into the material. But in some ways, teaching the survey 
can be really very interesting too and very enjoyable just because you get students who perhaps never taken art history before and they actually find some things that are fascinating and interesting for them and they by the end they are convinced that in fact it's a worthwhile activity whereas they may have just taken it because they needed an artistic approach is core to begin with right so so i guess that's a really wishy-washy answer (laughs) (laughs) i think that's really true though that you 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 give the students i think something very different in a survey kind of course and i think we as teachers get something very different out of courses like that and if you think about what people do by way of teaching at a big research university that you're really just teaching over and over a course or a couple of courses on your research, on your specialty. And so you're learning a lot about one thing. You're drilling really deeply into one kind of narrow well. But, you know, you don't a couple years later actually know anything about any other time period or world region or topic. And I always think that when I go to conferences and I talk to people in my field who teach at research universities, they know more than I do about sort of the minutiae of the 12th century. But they don't actually know like anything about what happened in the 16th century right. or anything about what happened in the adjoining region of Europe. And so I'm really grateful just to be a well-rounded person. And I feel like the <laughs> students take you through that journey every year. Absolutely. When Did you anticipate teaching at a place like this? Because you mentioned the difference between a big R1 research university. I did. Yeah, I was really conscious of that when I was on the job market because this is not true of a lot of people who teach at UPS who teach very, very well. But I, I did go to a place like this. I went to Vassar College, mm. which is numerically, I think, pretty comparable yeah. to UPS. And um, a similar kind of mission, a similar kind of student-centered learning, kind of small classroom seminar style um, environment. And that was, for me, a huge game changer just in my personal development that mm. I, if I had gone to a place like the State University of New York, you know, where my sister went and really flourished, I would have just been this anonymous, shy person who <laughs> never talked in class, never talked to a professor. And because I went to this place that was like a Puget Sound-like place, you know, people kind of fostered me and, and helped me grow, and I became the person I am now. So I think this is a model I really believed in before I came mm-hmm. here, um, and I wanted to be at a place like this. So super happy that I ended up here. Did you find that to be true as a teacher also? Did you feel that from the other side once you became a professor? Yeah, I mean, I think, so when I was in graduate school, I had a lot of teaching experience, which turned out to have served me in good stead. And I taught at NYU, which is where I went to grad school, and I taught just only large classes there. Mm -hmm. And I I realized there I didn't want to lecture to 100 plus students every week that I didn't find that very enjoyable. And it was hard for me to know what students were getting out of it, although, you know, I hope they got something. I also taught at Seton Hall, you know, known for basketball program right. where I got a lot of laughs because I never recognized the basketball players in my class, <laughs> which people couldn't believe. Um, and again, I sort of, you know, it was big classes, not as much room for engagement with individual students, not getting to see that arc of student development over time, which you get to see at a place like this. So by the time I was on the job market, I was sure I did not want to be at like a giant research university. Um I applied for those jobs because we all, all us medievalists are just happy to get a job, but <laughs> but this was the kind of job I hoped to get, so. Crystal, what about for you? Did you start your doctorate anticipating that you would become an academic? Um, let me back up. Okay, please. Uh, so when I, 
I studied art history in Hungary, so I have my first university degree from Hungary. And when I went into that field in Hungary, I never intended to teach. Yeah, I always imagined, just given what I knew and who who the people were in the field in art history, that I would work in a museum. Mm. And then I came to the U.S. Um, and uh, I had no success whatsoever finding a job uh, with an artist deg- degree from Hungary anywhere, in a, uh, even as a gallery assistant. Mm. So uh, I realized when I came that uh, the only way that I can actually really pursue what I want to do here in the U.S. is to go to grad school. Sure. And once uh, I started grad school, um, almost immediately, not in the first year, but I think starting in the second year, I started teaching, as a mm. te- first as a teaching assistant, and then I got my individual courses, and then I realized that I actually like this. I enjoy doing this, and this is probably what I would like to do. So, so I had a fair, fairly fundamental shift yeah. um, in what I imagined I would do eventually. Right. Which, in a lot of ways, I think parallels. It's funny you mentioned that parallels the student experience at a place like Puget Sound because one of the themes that has come up again and again as I talk to people is people saying, "I came in with some." idea about what I might do, and then it changed entirely, right? I, I took a class I that was required for the core, and it turned out that was what I really liked. Or I had heard great things about a professor in a f- field I had never had, not, my high school just didn't have, and suddenly it turned out that made me sit up straight. And I think a lot of people have the experience of, oh, I tried something, and it turns out that's really what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that experience only on a smaller scale because I knew that I wanted to do art history at a fairly early age, but I always imagined I would do 19th and 20th century or maybe even contemporary. And it didn't take very long to to be seduced into uh, medieval <laughs> art. Yeah. And first I thought I would do Western medieval art because Hungary is uh, in terms of its geopolitical position and cultural location is more Western oriented than right. uh, than Byzantine oriented, even though we flirted with both sides. Mm. And so that's what I studied in Hungary. I actually studied much more Western medieval art, um, and then um, and then I got seduced again uh, into Byzantium here. So what are you going to do? And for anybody who's listening and maybe doesn't know, what are some of the contemporary countries that make up Byzantium? What region of the world is that? Well, that would be mostly Turkey and Greece today. So, and some, you know, at some point parts of the Balkans, but I'd say Turkey, Turkey, Greece, and Greece. Yeah. I was going to say, just listening to you, I feel like you, Puget Sound is a good place in the sense that it offers that sort of space for discovery and mm-hmm. for mind changing and sort of um, gear changing that often if you, if you start on a particular track at a big school, it's very difficult to sure. do that, that you come in as kind of a pre-biology major or something like that. And students students here, I think, all the time come with some vision of what they want to be, what they want to do, not having the big picture of what's possible, mm-hmm. right? And part of our job is to show them what's possible. Like, I, I went to college to be um, – uh, I, I wanted to restore – paintings. I thought that I would be really good at this because I love to paint and I was very detail oriented yeah. and it turned out I'm very mediocre as a painter <laughs> and, and I don't have the slightest aptitude for chemistry which you need to study lots of to do this and so you know I had the space in college to change my mind and to realize oh I was good at history I was good at the humanities I was good at writing and researching and um, you know I had 
I had professors who saw that, who sort of helped me develop that. But um, I see that all the time with students who don't even know what art history is or don't know what philosophy is. Um, I've never heard of African-American studies. You can you can major in that somewhere. Right. And so they, they have this kind of opportunity to reinvent themselves, and they're not sort of stuck at the end of college having to find a way to fit themselves into a box they sort of imagined when they were 17. Right. So I think that's really important. And let me just add to that that um, that at this at this university, there's also the possibility of following a couple of different tracks that uh, that people might not even think would be possible or compatible. I I just had a student graduate who came to art history a little bit late at the end of her second year here, mm-hmm. and she was already a declared computer science major. Right, and uh, she remained a computer science major and added an art history second mm-hmm. major to it. And and it's possible. And actually, she's the third one of that combination, having gone through our program. Computer in the science last, and art history? Mm-hmm, in <laughs> the last, I'd say, five years or so. Wow. So there are some really unusual, interesting combinations uh, that, we, that we allow uh, for students to pick here that perhaps is not not um, necessarily the case at other places. Hey there, I'm Brittany Jackson, Assistant Director of Admission and Multicultural Admission Coordinator. I also work with all of our applicants from the city of Tacoma, and I'm checking in to make sure you know all about the Tacoma Public Schools commitment, a full need financial aid package available to most graduates of the Tacoma Public Schools. There is an application process, so hop onto our website at pugetsound.edu slash TPS to find out more. But for now, back to the show. One of the reasons I'm talking to both of you together is that you are the co-directors of the newly minted uh, interdisciplinary humanities emphasis, which is another one of those ways. Um, well, I shouldn't say ways. Is another another area where students can weave uh, maybe differing directions or different academic approaches throughout their experience. We talk a little bit about just what that is and how it works. Absolutely. So this is um, this is a program that. Um, first was offered this this past fall in this incarnation. And um, it's a program that weaves together um, all disciplines of the humanities uh, at Puget Sound, from African-American studies through history, through theater, um, and even some courses from uh, disciplines that perhaps are perceived as not humanities, mm-hmm. um, um, but rather social sciences, but, uh, but where colleagues teach in a humanistic um, fashion. And um, perhaps Catherine can can add to that. Sure. I mean, I think following what we've been talking about, so we conceived of this as not um, an either or, but a kind of both and option for students who may have a strong interest or already or have decided they're going to major in, for example, biology, but they're thinking, I'm so interested in film, or I'm so interested in social justice, or Mm -hmm. I'm so interested in um, visual culture. And so we imagined, what if students had the ability to, through fulfilling core courses and graduation requirements, give those more 
sort of coherence, often those are kind of a grab bag for students, mm-hmm. but but also to do what's almost like another minor. Um, oftentimes we have students in disciplines like biology, like computer science, um, who are so f- focused on getting all the prerequisites that are required by those programs that it's actually really hard for them to fit in a minor. Um, we also have students who want to go abroad or who want a double major, and they're they may have a kind of side interest that they are not really able to find a way to pursue. And so this was our our goal was to give students who wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to do this kind of minor-like experience the opportunity to do that while doing things they have to do already, like fulfilling core requirements, fulfilling graduation requirements. And so just to give an example, you, you could have a student who was wanting to be pre-med, um, and they're looking already at something like half of their courses will be spoken for just just in the process of fulfilling all the pre-med prereqs. Um, but they could still do an emphasis in, for example, visual culture that would allow them to take courses in literature, film studies, in art history. It could encompass upper division language study if that was something they were passionate about. And it gives them the ownership in this part of their academic career that they might not have in the rest of it in the sense that the, the, our model is a pathway model, so it's not a traditional major or minor in which you have sequentially ordered courses that you have to take in order, but it's incumbent on the student to choose a series of five courses that seem to them to resonate with one another and with the interests that they have. Mm-hmm. And those courses are thematically linked, but they cross different disciplines, and they can allow the student an opportunity to kind of turn over a set of questions from a set of different perspectives. And so this is something that it's a little different from a traditional course of study as it has existed at most universities, but I think it responds to both the interest of students increasingly in designing their own curriculum, something that many students are very keen to do when they come to college, but often find it difficult to do in practice. But also to the reality that we live in a world in which interdisciplinary thinking is becoming more valuable, more important, and yet there's not maybe that many sort of traditional academic homes for it. Right. And so the pathways that Catherine mentioned um, um, are are organized thematically. And so we have... uh, we introduced six pathways in the first year and added a seventh, which will be available starting in the fall. And so, as Catherine mentioned, we had we have uh, pathways organized around visual culture. Uh, another one called artist as a humanist. We have two uh, two pathways that are kind of around social justice issues. One is focused on gender. The other one is uh, focused on race and ethnicity. We have one on the global Middle Ages and what am I forgetting? Empire. Um, uh, we ha- the new one is uh, colonialism and empire, and there is still one more that I somehow am forgetting. That's right, science and values. <laughs> so, uh, so seven altogether starting in the fall. So these are all things that um, do not neatly overlap with pre-existing programs at the university. Sure. So the idea was not to compete with our colleagues for students, but to offer students ways of thinking about sets of questions that other departments and programs weren't doing individually, but maybe collectively um, could be doing if we kind of harness the courses and put them together in this pathway format. And one of the things that I'm really struck by 
about the pathways too, and this is indicated by the name, but is that they all have to do with the humanities. And I don't know that either of you know this about me, um, but my parents are artists. My mom is a painter. My dad is now retired, but was a music critic for a long time, was a music journalist. And because of that, I grew up with a really intuitive understanding of the value of the fine arts and the humanities and what that means for um, a good life writ large. In my job now, uh, I find that there's oftentimes a lot more quantifying of what is good about this, what will I learn about this, right. why does it matter, um, even I think in discussions about the core curriculum and some of those graduation requirements, I notice a lot of students coming to those conversations with the idea of, well, it's good to do this because it's required, mm -hmm. and less of a sort of broad, holistic understanding of what matters. So uh, realizing that I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit with a big question, why does it matter that we study the humanities? What is important about giving people access to these types of conversations and issues and spaces who otherwise maybe wouldn't self-select for them? Well, I think there's sort of two ways of answering this question in thinking about the concerns you raise that I think are very valid concerns that people are coming to college with. So there's the first concern, which is the first is kind of conceptual. So how does this shape you as a person? How does this prepare you to be an active citizen in a democratic society? And I think the second is, how will this get me a job? Right. Right. And so I think if you, if, I'm going to take the second one first, if that's okay, because sure. I think that's really pressing and that's the quantifiable part. Right. So we think in terms a lot of college now as a kind of pre-professional training for a specific job. I think this is misguided for a lot of reasons. I think a lot of data is now sort of coming out that shows it's going to be very hard to know what hard skills you need for the future economy because we don't really know what that economy will look like even in 20 years. Um, given that, I think an argument can be made for the importance of two kinds of skills. So, so one would be higher order kind of critical skills, critical analysis, the ability to communicate in writing and orally in a clear, effective manner, the ability to evaluate information, um, to evaluate truth claims. Um, I think we could also say, though, that soft skills are going to be tremendously important. There's, 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 there's no doubt about this at all. These are This is the robot proofing of your future, <laughs> that you are able to listen with empathy, that you're able to imagine another person's perspective, that you're able to um, be a compassionate human being. Um, but, but these kinds of soft skills are absolutely essential to be versatile, to be creative, to be flexible. If you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a mm -hmm. computer scientist, it doesn't really matter what profession you're envisioning. If you're going to do something which is quite likely for our current students that, that doesn't exist as a career yet, right. we know that all of these things will be important. So I'm not saying it's not valuable to get content-based and skills-based education, but I, th I think that um, we can say with certainty that the humanities does probably just exceptionally well. I don't want to say better than any other area <laughs> because I'll get into a huge d debate with colleagues, but <laughs> the humanities does an exceptionally good job of, of imparting these kind of higher-order thinking skills and these soft skills, which we know with certainty will be important going forward. And then there's a conceptual kind of argument. Right. right. And and let me add to this that we understand the humanities broadly also 
uh, actually encompassing the arts. So mm. if if you look at uh, our offerings through the pathways, they they do include both making art and studying uh, different forms of art, including uh, visual arts, music, theater. So film. so we film. So we have a very broad understanding of this, and uh, and I I agree with everything that um, Catherine has suggested that um, studying these areas um, uh, gives you a, a certain type of perspective on the world, your place within the world, and also gives you um, perhaps the skills to be to remain a lifelong learner, which clearly in this world, it is no longer possible to just get a degree <laughs> right. and and not continuously learn new skills, which uh, we, we have to do as we adopt to new tools that we have to use in our classroom, new ways of managing information, new ways of displaying information, sharing information, all kinds of other things that, you know, might might be small but need continued uh, continued effort uh, to uh, uh, to engage with. So so I think um, lifelong, lifelong learning as a pattern is important and really is something that humanity and arts courses do uh, do um, engage um, do invite students to do and I had a second thought which now I have lost so I'm sorry can I, can I add maybe I, this is a second I thought come I don't back know. To I mean another thing I was going to say was we so we we think of the humanities um, very broadly and and also we think of the humanities as not being these kind of old-fashioned, um, methodological frameworks that are only concerned with a very small subset of humanities questions that we really feel that humanities is a set of tools and disciplines that allow us to tackle some of the most pressing challenges in our world. So the students we have now are going to be faced with solving huge problems, right? Problems around environmental change, problems around the nature of our democracy, problems around just the profound inequalities of our world. And being able to step back and assess these questions, how have people addressed these questions of profound importance to humanity over time, across space, from different cultural perspectives, this is going to make it possible for students to step up to that challenge. And I don't, I don't say this as an either or, like this isn't study science or study this, but right. it's, it's study all of these things and take the opportunity at a place like UPS to study humanities alongside other ways of looking at the world. Well, and let me just add that yes, Catherine actually arrived at one of the points that I wanted to make, <laughs> okay. which is which is uh, historical perspective is is absolutely uh, essential to understand where we are today, mm. and uh, it, it's really not possible to understand this world without knowing how we got here. So, uh, so I think that's a that's a fundamental um, element, and I know that sometimes we need to justify why it is interesting and important to study the medieval world but in fact there there are uh, there are things that you can trace from the middle ages or even the ancient world all the way to today uh, tentacles that mm -hmm. that um, that simply are uh, continuous uh, continuous and are important uh, to know and then the other thing that I wanted to add is that um, humanistic um, thinking also um, 
uh, engages with uh, larger questions that are brought brought um, to the fore by scientific discoveries, questions around ethics and responsibility, and um, and um, and so I think I um, I think it's important uh, to acknowledge uh, the significance of that because because as Catherine points out. We are in a historical moment that uh, where things um, where things are very serious, socially, environmentally, in many ways. I think too, though, that with historical perspective, you can take comfort in the fact that humans have had these moments before, mm-hmm. right? They haven't always done a very good job of dealing with them, but I think you can learn from that. So, um, in some ways, I think the. The answer to the kind of hopelessness that I think a lot of people who are in their teens and 20s are feeling about the direction of the world, and I don't mean to seem so pessimistic, I don't think they all feel that way, but I think a lot of them do. Um, the, The answer to that is not just sort of immerse yourself in the now and the here, right, but to be willing to think about the then and the there because there's all of these problems that people have tackled before that we don't have to reinvent the wheel in terms of thinking about solutions. We do have to be creative, but that there's a lot we can learn from the past and from other cultural groups. And I would say also that I think of maybe a kernel of that creativity is in figuring out how to put those things together. So right. how do I take my knowledge of the past and apply it to my objective understanding of a contemporary issue? Right. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about weaving a pathway with a major, with a minor, with an experiential semester abroad, right. is figuring out how to patchwork those things together mm-hmm. in an applied way. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Catherine and Krista, we end all of our conversations with the same four questions. Uh, The first question that I'm going to ask you is, what's the best place on campus, do you think? You know, I have thought about this quite a lot um, um, because you sent us the questions. (laughs) And I'm going to say the Center for Writing, Learning, and Teaching is a fantastic place. Um, And I say this for several reasons. It's a place uh, where uh, students come together as a community. It's a place where um, faculty colleagues come together as a community. And it's also a place where we have student artwork. Mm. So I think it's a great place. (laughs) That's a great answer. I was thinking about this too. And I think it sort of depends on if it's raining or not for me. But (laughs) the Arboretum, if it's not raining, Mm. is a wonderful place to go and to feel like you're in a whole other world. Even though it's quite small, it really gives that effect. Um, of being in a forest. But I think the Archives and Special Collections, which is on the second Mm -hmm. floor of the library, is my favorite indoor space. You can go there um, with students and you get to watch students sort of um, their faces light up when they see like a 17th century printed pamphlet or a 15th century printed book that's from the beginning of the age of print. Um, there's Chinese propaganda posters from the age of Tiananmen Square. There's uh, books of hours from the Middle Ages. There's all kinds of amazing things there. And it's this kind of repository of knowledge within the repository of knowledge of the university. What are you reading right now? What am I reading? I am reading uh, a mystery. Oh, good. Um, I I tend to read lots of mysteries uh, as recreational reading. So this is uh, by Fiona Barton. It's called The Child. Mm. I've never heard of that. That sounds good. I love mysteries too. It's it's a pretty easy read. Yeah, 
I've been. I just finished reading. Um, I don't know if you've heard of. I know you like French stuff. Um, Martin Walker. Have you heard of these I have Bruno not books? Heard of Martin Walker. So they're about a small town French detective. Um, he's he's written a ton of them. They're they're all sort of based um, in the Auvergne, and you get to read a lot about French cooking, which is very oh, I would like that fun. And, <laughs> but I'm reading. I'm reading um, um, Coleman. Whitehead's uh, Underground Railroad. Oh, I'm yeah. almost done with it. And it's one of those books that I just don't have the mental energy or like cl- intellectual clarity to read during the semester because right. <laughs> I just can't give it like the time and energy it's due. And then it's wonderful to have the summer where you can have the space to read and digest something like that. Yeah, that's a difficult read. Yeah. What is the best place to eat in Tacoma? Oh, I love the table. Mm. I also really like Indo Street Eatery. So Inst- I, Indo has come up several times. That's a very popular choice. I, yeah, it, I'd say those are my two favorite places if I can choose. I would say what's amazing about Tacoma is there's new places every week. That is to true. Eat, and I'm so excited to try all these places that are on this kind of long list that I didn't get to in the past couple years. But um, I really, really like... Um, uh, Tacoma Szechuan, which is, I think, technically mm. in Lakewood. Yeah. But, <laughs> so I hope that's okay to say. But it's just delicious, delicious Szechuan food. Um, and you get to try all kinds of things that you might, as an American who's familiar with sort of Americanized Chinese food, not get to try. So you need a car if mm. you want to go there, but it's well worth the effort. And then you can buy fresh tofu next door and shop at Peldo Market and have kind <laughs> of another kind of immersive experience in Tacoma. <laughs> Lastly, what makes Puget Sound special to you? Well, I would say um, we have um, many, many supportive colleagues, Mm -hmm. um, many um, curious students, and a really beautiful physical space. So um, the President's Woods are an amazing place to walk through, even in the fog. Or (laughs) what was it called? The, the marine layer. The marine layer. We learned marine, today. The marine People layer. Call it the marine layer. That's right. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I mean, just having gone through um, graduation weekend not too long ago, I, I feel like there's this wonderful sense of community that we have, of, of shared purpose, of the faculty being very invested in the arc of students' time here that. Um, when when I go to these end of the year parties at commencement and you see all the seniors with their families um, and you realize that all the professors know them and are <laughs> eager to meet their families, that you feel this kind of sense of shared endeavor, that we really care about teaching, that we're self-selected as a group because we want to spend time mentoring students. So I think that's pretty special. Catherine Smith and Krista Kutsis, thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. to our guest and to you, the listener. You can follow Puget Sound on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. And we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of P.S., the Puget Sound podcast.